So a quick side note here. Back when I was in high school, I'd make short films with my uh, buddies and we'd take it pretty seriously, but we had nowhere to play these short films. So I started a high school film festival along with my high school teacher and now the festival director, Tom Oliva, in addition to other incredible people, this fest has grown into the All-American High School Film Festival, the largest high school film festival in the world. Once a year, we invite thousands of kids from all over the world, I think over 30 countries at this point, 48 states, North and South Dakota still have not submitted, to see their films played at the biggest movie theater in the world. They learn from industry insiders. There's a massive college fair. Over 20 universities come to recruit students. And last year alone, we gave over $400,000 in scholarships and prizes. I don't make a penny off the festival, but what I am doing is looking to hire a new person who would make well more than a penny. As the festival has grown, so have the jobs at the festival, which is why we'll be using ZipRecruiter to find a new staff member. And if you're hiring, I'd suggest you do this as well for three simple reasons. My dad's always said, most things in life can be broken down into three pillars. So one, ZipRecruiter posts your jobs to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Two, ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. Three, it's not really much of a wonder why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So you can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by all businesses of all sizes and industries, including my film festival, to find out the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. So right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Things are about to get real interesting. First and quickly, season one of What Really Happened became the number one Apple podcast in the world, which my team and I are endlessly grateful for. The response by so many listeners who call in and the feedback everyone has provided on social media has been surreal. Because of this response, myself and the producers of the show, Cadence 13, Seven Bucks Productions, this random dude, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz, have decided to not just begin work on season two, but starting now, once a week, we'll be releasing six reaction episodes to our first six episodes in season one. More on what this means shortly. Before I dive into what President Bartlett would say, what's next, I wanted to quickly say, after recording our first six episodes, that season one became unintentionally a celebration of journalism, with some exceptions. This includes much of what cable news has become, because when I watch cable news, I normally barf, or at least want to. Cable news treats me, treats all of us, like idiots. On CNN, for instance, I turn on Anderson Cooper, who seems like he'd be a great hang and once interviewed me in which I did a terrible job explaining why millennials don't vote. But regardless, he, like all others or many others on every other network, make a point of saying their news coverage is balanced. When on air, cable news hosts say they are showing this balance and reporting objectively by bringing on guests who are conservative and liberal. These two sides on the ideological spectrum then have at it. 
Oftentimes, if it weren't clear enough, the guests are put on different sides of a desk, or there's a split screen. Obviously, this has been going on for quite some time, perhaps with those actual debates between Nixon and Kennedy. But these talking heads shout at each other or over each other, sticking stubbornly to political party lines. It plays out like diehard fans of a really bad sports team making arguments that their team is actually really good. It defies logic. It just doesn't add up if you have a mind. Nonetheless, cable news outlets will say, quote, see, we got both sides. We're being fair. But that's not being fair. That's just showing the two opposing sides. Life exists in between those two. For me, what really happened is about understanding the shades of gray. I'm looking for patterns and nuance. Places like CNN falsely identify themselves as news channels. The concept they are a news outlet is a lie. They are an entertainment news outlet. They need drama. A rule in storytelling, if there are rules, as Robert McKee would ram into your mind, is to create conflict as soon as possible. Conflict equals drama equals an audience, eyeballs. These channels know this. That gray area isn't as entertaining. They elevate the drama as much as possible by getting people from opposing sides, and it's also why they love those breaking news flashes. Breaking, by definition, has inherent conflict. And if it's not breaking news, there's now a whole host of other options they'll go to. Developing news, just in, countdown clocks, banners, scrolls, you name it. It'd be easy to hit Fox News and CNN over this. But let's just go with Rachel Maddow. One Saturday night last month, when she had a breaking news banner, even though the episode wasn't live and I realized was a repeat from the day prior. So our show is doing its best to be transparent in terms of what we are and what we aren't. When people call me a journalist, I'm quick to say no. I'm a storyteller, and I happen to really care about telling nonfiction stories and telling them as accurately as I can, however earnest that may seem. Sometimes this includes reporting or tracking down certain people, but I have too much respect for journalists to consider myself one. John Stewart was a comedian that happened to cover news and oftentimes history. I'm a storyteller that happens to cover the news and oftentimes history. If an episode of our podcast airs and has the same conclusions that I thought I would have in the beginning of the research process, it only means I wasn't listening in between. If you haven't, Check out the first six episodes of our show, and I think that's clear. But it's never given me permission to be lazy or just find conflict wherever I can. If I wanted to find out what happened with Chris Christie and Bridgegate, I could have easily gotten a New Jersey Republican and Democrat, and they go back and forth on what happened. But that's not what really happened. We all know we're smarter than that. It's just hard to know who to trust with information, which is scary to think but something which we can overcome. And according to our listeners, you all want a thorough understanding of topics. And if it's not good enough, you've told me by calling our phone line or on my Twitter at Andrew Jenks. And that is one part of why we have these reaction episodes, to make sure this process is inclusive and reputable. I'm extremely sensitive to how busy listeners of this show are. Which is why, although you probably don't always think this may be the case, particularly in this moment, I do not sit down in the recording studio, go off the cuff, and record myself pontificating about history. I write draft after draft, making sure I'm as concise as possible. 
examine all of the information and facts or lack thereof, and try my best to demonstrate patterns of behavior, misunderstood information, overlooked narratives, and as Matt Katz told me, become a bit of a curating documentary podcaster. Ultimately, I look at these podcast documentaries as my own campfire stories. I want to tell you an awesome story, but never sway from the truth. Without the truth, the story is pointless. Winston Churchill biographers William Manchester and Paul Reed call it the campfire test. Truth starts with a question, not an opinion. Or as Socrates said, and then I'll quit on this pedantic monologue and get into the episode, but as Socrates would say, some variation of, quote, I'm the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. What really happened? Season one has given me, and hopefully all of you, insight into worlds and people and history I at least could have never imagined. Along with my incredible team and all of you, we've learned, hopefully learned, everything from the story behind who really is to blame for Britney Spears' media-manufactured train wreck, to the vital role Chris Christie's childhood baseball team scorekeeper David Wildstein, a.k.a. the Lone Wolf, had, on the Bridgegate scandal, to the poorly made documentaries recently done on Princess Diana that were staged and full of BS insight, overlooking much of what made her a -a once-in-a-generation figure, all the way to the life and career of Michael Jordan. If nothing else, we sure do got range. Maybe not MJ range, but at least Pippin. For each of these reaction episodes, I'll be giving worthwhile updates on each of the first six episodes, in addition to interviews with experts, biographers, journalists, and oftentimes, most importantly, people on the ground who were there for these events, and the people the world oftentimes hasn't heard from in years. Today's reaction is to episode one, The Talk. Before I get into the episode, I definitely recommend listening to the original episode. All six of our original episodes are available. Just subscribe to What Really Happened to listen. So a quick preview of this episode. I do follow-up interviews with the New York Times best-selling author of Ali, A Life, Jonathan Eig. He was a clown, you know. He just loved pulling stunts. Also, the author Dave Hannigan, who has written two great Ali books, Drama in the Bahamas, Muhammad Ali's Last Fight, and The Big Fight, which is the story of Muhammad Ali defeating Al Blue Lewis in 11 rounds in Dublin. You know, there are some charlatans in Ali world in the 1980s and even into the early 1990s. I also speak with actor Dylan McDermott, who tells a really moving story about his time with Ali on a private plane to the Special Olympics. The only way I can describe it is God. It was a, it was, God was present in that moment between us. And last, I'll be revisiting our story on whether Muhammad Ali talked a man, Joseph, out of committing suicide. All of that is on this reaction episode to what really happened, the talk. So what did the listeners think? What did you all think? There was a lot and the reaction was all over the place, which I guess should have been expected since there was so much intricate detail in this story. As you may recall, I left that Ali episode with the question of whether or not he saved Joseph out of committing suicide, essentially talked him out of committing suicide. For the full story, certainly go to our first episode and listen to the talk and then come back here to listen as I'm going to give away some things here. So what has been the follow-up? Well, 
There's a solid chance that Ali was looking to prove to the world that he could still talk after being called unintelligible and that he could certainly still fight. But there's also a chance that it was an Ali demonstration, if you will, of the shortcomings of the Vietnam War. Seeing as Joseph was reported to have been a Vietnam vet, something people in Ali's camp falsely regurgitated over the years, but I realized wasn't possible because of Joseph's age, and that although he was shouting that the Viet Cong were after him, he wasn't ever actually in Vietnam. There was also a chance it was to take attention away from the celebrations of the inauguration of Ronald Reagan, who Ali, at that point in his life, didn't like for very personal reasons. It could be a combination of all of those reasons, one of those reasons, or none of those reasons. Frankly, most seem to agree with me that the facts do not lead us anywhere concrete. Many thought I didn't make a big enough deal of the guy Boris Yarrow, who took that famous photo, and said on the phone to me that although he had never expressed it, he always found the whole situation awfully fortuitous. Many of you also thought the fact that the man had been up there for two hours threatening to commit suicide, threatening to jump, and there wasn't any footage of all of the other attempts that people say had happened. This was suspect, as one tweet suggested. I thought it was the big picture items, or the more pressing items for Ali, at least. That was him being hell-bent on getting another fight. But I respect many of you who really thought it was these little cracks in the story that started to add up. These messages on my Twitter handle, at Andrew Jenks, or on our website, jenkspod.com, made a point that in a story like this, details matter. And details are what we skipped over pretty much since 1981. A few of you called in with some amazing messages, and there were a few that said we were wrong about Ronald Reagan that Ali wouldn't have done this to break into the news coverage of Reagan's inauguration because Ali and Reagan were friends. Now, part of the show's experience is calling out and noting when we get facts or stories wrong. But in this case, the two were friends, but not until after that first presidential election. Ali had not gotten over the fact that Reagan didn't allow him to fight in California when Reagan was governor and remained angry over Reagan's Vietnam stance. So yes, there are some great photos of President Reagan and Muhammad Ali, but none before 1981. It wasn't until about a month before the 1984 presidential election that Ali did in fact endorse Ronald Reagan's re-election bid. This is because both Ali and Reagan were quite religious. And Ali said, quote, Reagan's keeping God in schools, and that's enough. For the last two months, we've been searching for Joseph. Finding him finally would help sort out an answer. We asked you listeners to help us and removed the needle a bit. I think I know where he is, or at least the area. I think I found him on Facebook. I've reached out to him in different ways, but haven't heard back. And I have to be careful because I can't yet verify his mental stability. I'll keep trying to speak with him but won't ruin the guy's life if that's going to be a result. I'm not Dr. Phil, <laughs> found a way to get him in here, who does believe that you can pay and track down people for his shows to be entertaining. At least that's my opinion. So quick side note here. I uh, once fell pretty hard for a lesbian. 
I, uh, I didn't know that she was at the time. She didn't tell me. I only learned on probably the third date when her girlfriend came as, as well. I also fell pretty hard once for a woman who, after many dates, I realized she wasn't kissing me. And I, you know, gently asked what was up and she said I'd have to join her cult, which I don't know. Um, you know, I'm not judging. Maybe it was a good cult, but I had work and I was kind of busy. So who has the time for that? So anyway, what's the solution for those out there that can't really find that love, not looking for a random hookup? If you're like me or you're just single without all of the insecurities I got, well, we've all heard of this company, eHarmony, which for years now uses a combination of science, data, and psychological research to send you the right matches. Efficiency, for me anyway, is vital, and I don't want anyone to be lonely. I mean, you know. So come on, you're not above online dating. No one is anymore, especially something like this, which is totally legit. So easy solution. My listeners can get a free month with eHarmony when they sign up for a three-month subscription. Enter my code WRH at checkout. That's WRH. Stop waiting and start your journey to a satisfying, meaningful relationship. It can be fun to play around with online dating apps, but when you're ready to fall in love with someone and have a meaningful relationship, there's one app that's built to bring you real love, eHarmony. Come see how eHarmony can change your life. Go to eHarmony.com and get started. Enter my code WRH at checkout. What really happened is made possible by all of you incredible listeners. And the folks who support this show, including myself, would love to know just a little bit more about who is listening. So if you have two minutes, and it really only does take two minutes, help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. You just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com, listenerq.com forward slash W-R-H and take a really short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we really would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Two minutes, listenerq.com slash W-R-H. That's listenerq.com slash W-R-H. First, we're going to be speaking with Golden Globe winner and Emmy nominee, in addition to my good friend, Dylan McDermott. Dylan, for those who don't know, is an incredible actor, The Practice, American Horror Story. He's in a new show that I think is fucking really funny, L.A. to Vegas. He kills it in the lead role. Dylan, thank you for uh, joining us. Oh, yeah, my pleasure, Jay. You know, we were talking in passing. I didn't really, and I was talking to you about what I'm up to, and I didn't know, but uh, you, it sounds like, had a pretty special moment with Ali. Yeah, it was uh, it was really amazing. It was uh, the Special Olympics 2003. Uh, Maria Shriver and Arnold Schwarzenegger asked me to to go over and to uh, be a host for the Special Olympics in Ireland. And uh, I jumped on that because I'm half Irish and I love Ireland. And I thought that the Special Olympics were a, were a great thing. And, and to get everybody together um, and to go over there and support them was uh, was a really cool thing. And I really enjoyed myself. And Little did I know that Muhammad Ali was going to be on the plane going over. So everybody Incredible. was asleep because it's a long flight from Los Angeles to uh, Dublin. And uh, Muhammad and, my, and myself were the only ones up. And a little piece of light was peeking through the window. Mm. And I saw him drawing. And at that point, you know, he couldn't talk. He really couldn't communicate with words. But what he had 
which I thought was fascinating, was all these photographs of his whole life. Hmm. And he took out this box of photographs and he started to show me one after another, after another of his life of, you know, when he was a kid to his heyday as a boxer to his, his present day. And uh, he told the story in pictures. And then he also had drawings. He had all these drawings that uh, he, he had, had drawn over time. And they were like beautiful drawings as well. Um, so even though he didn't have all his facilities of, of speech, he had the ability to communicate in a way that uh, was just as powerful as speech. So we sat there for a good hour and went through everything. And, and, and uh, it was, it, for me, it was, uh, it was a magical time because, you know, I had grown up watching him as a fighter. I had grown up seeing him as an activist um, and the power of his voice. And suddenly this man who had so much power in his voice didn't have a voice, mm. but he had equal power in terms of the life that he had led already with the photographs and his pictures and his, and, uh, his drawing. So, uh, and all of a sudden the light just kept getting stronger and stronger. And I opened it a little bit and there he and I were, and it was, it was the only way I can describe it is God. It was, a, it was, God was present in that moment between us. And then funny enough, years later, I'm in Kentucky doing a movie and I'm playing a serial killer and someone in my hotel jumped or was pushed over the, the balcony. And I came home that day and he was on the cement floor and I was like, Oh man, I got, I got to get the hell out of this place. I'm already stressed as it is playing this guy. And this has actually happened in my hotel. Jeez. I said, no problem, Dylan, we'll move you to another hotel. So they moved me to another hotel in, in Kentucky in Louisville and they moved into this beautiful hotel and a really nice suite. And I walked in, they were dropping my bags off. And I said, well, what a beautiful room. And they said, oh yeah, you know whose room this was? I said, they said, no. I said, Muhammad Ali, he lived here for a year. <laughs> Unbelievable. So the presence of Muhammad, Muhammad was there again for me. You know, there was some sort of like weird dynamic relationship, whatever you want to call it, that uh, I had with him. Maybe he didn't have it with me, but I certainly had it with him. And uh, there was a presence he had that, uh, that, that I carried with me for a long time. And my, uh, my mom was, was struggling with cancer and she put up the picture of Muhammad in her apartment. Uh, the famous picture of him, uh, with Sonny Liston mm -hmm. when he was over Sonny Liston with his glove. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so there's this inspiration he's had certainly in my life, you know, and I met his wife, Lonnie and, and, uh, you know, what a, what a strong woman she was, is, I should say. And, um, and uh, so just being around, we took pictures in Ireland. I have a picture, a great picture of him and my daughter, uh, who was so young at the time. You know, I have a picture of he and I together. So, um, you know, I, I guess this is a human being that was uh, so strong and so powerful and so enigmatic and, and uh, touched the world. You know, his voice touched the world. And, and certainly that was true for me perfectly put it it's incredible because the more people i talk to there's everyone has these stories of ali if they've met him for a minute and an hour a day there's something that happened correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think you're a particularly religious person it's not like you say god frequently but it was like no no but there was a presence there certainly yeah. of some higher divine intervention that night i never forgot it. i still carry it with me um to this day so something about that, you know, I was so happy that everybody was asleep, but he and I, because we got, I got time to be alone with him. Because after that, 
you know, everybody wants to take a picture with him or have an autograph, you know, you can't, you can't get to him. So it was nice to have that, those couple of hours with him. Last question. What is it like to be good friends with the podcast superstar, Andrew Jenks? Oh man, I always knew he'd be a podcast superstar. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, brother. You got him anytime. So I speak next with Dave Hannigan. Hannigan is a great Ali biographer that I've become a huge fan of because Hannigan is brilliant at bringing to life in thorough, entertaining ways, very specific parts of Ali's life and career that go overlooked. Dave's books on Ali, including Drama in the Bahamas, are excellent. He's also a professor of history at Suffolk Community College in Long Island. Talking with Dave is great, if nothing else, because of his terrific accent. But when you listen to him tell these Ali stories, you can hear this excitement in his voice. Ali gets Hannigan revved up. He is entranced with Ali, the good, the bad, but it rubs off on him, rubs off on me, and perhaps all of you. And just when you think his stories are winding down, they have a way of ramping back up. Because much of what we've covered in Ali's life is on the more serious side, I had a different line of questioning going into my interview with Hannigan. So, yeah, I don't know if you got my email, but just to jump right into it, uh, we've been on the more serious side of Ali and thought it would be worthwhile to see uh, what one of Ali's biographers, uh, if there was anything that came to mind in terms of a really funny story that maybe has been, you know, overlooked or kind of undervalued, if you will, through the years. There's a there's a whole lot of stories. Let, let me start. Let me start with a let me start with a story that I actually only came came across recently. Oh, nice. In in um, in nineteen in nineteen ninety seven, uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, the Republican senator from Utah, uh, was a very good friend of Muhammad Ali's, and they had become unlikely friends uh, in the late nineteen eighties. So in nineteen ninety seven, Senator Orrin Hatch invited Ali to Salt Lake City, and he wanted him to go and see the Mormon Tabernacle Choir with him, you know, to witness this great musical and religious event. And Senator Orrin Hatch is a devout Mormon, and he wanted his friend, uh, who is a Muslim, obviously, to come and witness this and experience this, this big thing in his religion. So Ali goes to Salt Lake City with Orrin Hatch. They go to the Tabernacle Choir. Um, they take their seats, and everybody's pointing. There's Ali. You know, he's still whatever, one of the most famous people on earth, uh, Senator Orrin Hatch sitting next to him. The, uh, the service goes on, and at the end of the service, Ali is very enthusiastic, mm-hmm. uh, very positive about what he had just witnessed, the singing, the whole experience. And as they're leaving, crowds of, of Mormons gather around Ali because, you know, he's the most famous person they've ever seen. They all want to touch him. They all want to, you know, whatever, shake his hand, get an autograph. So Ali, in his pocket, happens to have a bunch of leaflets that he starts handing out that all have his autograph on them. So all of the devout Mormons, they take this autograph or they take this autograph leaflet away. And it's only later when they look at the leaflet, they see the heading on it, contradictions in the Holy Bible. And it's a Muslim treatise about what is wrong with the Bible oh, that he just handed out to all these people, including Orrin Hatch, by the way. <laughs> Orrin Hatch also takes one and starts reading it. 
So, you know, again, this is this, this is Ali in 1997. This is Ali very late in his life. Yeah. Was, He's still, right. there's that, this tremendous sense of mischief with him. And, and again, you know, the person who tells that story most often is Orrin Hatch himself. Yeah. As evidence of what Ali, this is what Ali was like. He was your friend and he was a mischief maker. He was so much fun to be around, even in this kind of, you know, religious circumstance where he wanted to show him, you know, what, what Mormonism was about. Uh, uh, very timely as well, because I think Hatch is, is now retiring. He was always handing out stuff right. about Islam. Right. Wherever he went in the world, he handed out leaflets about Islam. But the beauty of this one was that this was, you know, a direct attack on on on, on the Bible in a Mormon church surrounded by Mormon worshippers who who had come, you know, to take take a little piece of Ali away with them, <laughs> and they got a little bit more of Ali than they than they thought they would get. That's really funny. that's really funny. And you only came across this recently. Yeah, I'm actually, I, I'm writing a column about Hatch's, Hatch's friendship with Ali because of, as you said, Hatch is retiring. Hatch is retiring, or just announced his retirement last week. And I'm writing a column for the Irish Times in Dublin. I write a weekly sports column for them about, you know, whatever comes to fancy in sport in America. I decided to write about Hatch and him because they are unlikely, very unlikely bedfellows. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This is an ultra conservative right wing Republican. Right. And this is, you know, the most radical American Muslim ever sort of thing. Hannigan, you got one more in you? I got I got a couple more. Oh, you can sweet. pick, or, pick yeah. or choose them. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, I'll give you one. It's July 1972. Muhammad Ali is in Dublin to fight a journeyman called Al Blue Lewis at Crow Park, a big stadium in Dublin. Uh, but that week, Ali is in Ireland. He's never been there before. He's causing havoc everywhere he goes. And it just so happens John Huston, the, the famous director of Treasure of the Sierra Madre and the Maltese Falcon, he's in Dublin as well this particular week. And John Huston has a new movie coming out called Fat City. It's 1972. Fat City is a movie, boxing movie based on a novel by Leonard Gardner. Very, very highly rated, critically acclaimed movie as it happens. So John Huston is a big boxing fan, did some boxing in his youth uh, in America. And now he's in Dublin. He wants to show his new movie to Ali. So he sets up a special screening at a cinema in Dublin for Ali and his entourage. And, you know, Houston is thrilled the opportunity to show Ali his, his great movie about boxing that he has made. And it's about, it's about low level professional boxing. So it's, it's an interesting movie. Mm. So John Houston sets up the whole screening. Ali and his entourage come to the Regal Cinema on off O'Connell Street in Dublin, right in the center of Dublin City. And Ali loves the start of the movie. There's, there's a young black boxer who's very arrogant, very mouthy, <laughs> and looks a lot like, sounds a lot like Ali. He's talking a great game, and Ali's shouting at the screen. He's animated. He's enjoying the movie. During the movie, he's doing this. He's during the movie, yeah, he's shouting. <laughs> he's, and, and John Huston's sitting there, you know, the grand old man of cinema, you know, very thrilled that Ali is so into the movie. Uh, but the movie changes pace at a certain point and the, the young black boxer basically oh, no. gets his ass handed to him in a fight oh, no. and gets destroyed. Um, and anyway, Houston, the movie goes on and Houston looks around about two thirds of the way through the movie. And there's Ali fast asleep in his sleep, <laughs> snoring. You know, this, this is an Oscar winner. This man has done everything. This is an, a great icon of American cinema. And Ali, he's put Ali to sleep an hour and something through, you know, into his great kind of boxing opus that he's been working on for years.
That's amazing. <laughs> Did Ali ever ever comment on the on the screening? Uh, he he actually he didn't say much about yeah. it afterwards. He said he liked the young guy yeah. at the start. <laughs> Good for him. There's another there's another great. story about there's another story about Dom. It's not so much about Ali, but I'll, I'll give it to you anyway, and you can whatever Please. you can do whatever you, you want to do with it. Yeah, thank you. So, so when Ali is fighting Al Blue Lewis, he's way above Al Blue Lewis in standard, but he's not really you know too interested in ending this fight early. They're giving the crowd what they came for. Uh, however. At the in the tenth round, Ali suddenly has a renewed urgency because when he gets back to his corner at the end of the tenth round, he tells Angelo Dundee, "I got to end this. I'm bursting. He needs to pee so badly. He now needs to end the fight." So the eleventh round begins, and suddenly Ali, who's been kind of lackadaisical, kind of lackluster all evening, opens up on Al Blue Lewis and just goes to town on Al Blue Lewis, and the ref steps in. The fight is ended. Ali finally, you know, his arms are in the air. Suddenly, all he can think of is, I got to get to the dressing room. I got to get to the bathroom. Uh, but he's in Dublin. They've never seen Ali before. Uh, right. Ali's never fought there before. Suddenly, 25,000 Irish fight fans swarm around the ring. Right. Hundreds of them clamber over the ropes into the ring. There's about six Irish policemen trying to <laughs> kick people out, but they're fighting a losing battle. Everybody's swarming, and everybody wants a piece of Ali. And Ali's bemused by this. You know, he, right. he's used to crowds, but not you know, not at the end of the fight, not at the end of a you know, this is not a world title fight or anything. Right. So eventually, there's a standoff. And Ali is in the ring trying to leave. The crowd will not move. They just want, they want to touch him. They want to get closer and closer. And finally, somebody stands up on the apron of the ring uh, with a loudspeaker and says, please, ladies and gentlemen, Muhammad has given us a great night. Please allow Muhammad to go to the dressing room. And at that point, somebody from the crowd in Ireland shouts, no, let the dressing room come to Muhammad. <laughs> I have one more for you that I don't know is it funny um, I don't know is it funny or it's, it might actually just be kind of sad it's, it's the one about Ali and Ali and Evil Knievel go to Kmart <laughs> Ali and Knievel there's, there's I mean no that's punch, a hell of a setup there's no punchline in this um, well I'm actually like I you've, mean, are, you've given the caveat that it won't be funny and it could be sad so well <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you've set it up pretty well for yourself. It's, it's, it's the beginning of a great joke. Like Muhammad Ali and Evil can Evil go to Kema. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so we're, we're in in 1987. Muhammad Ali um, was one of the many products containing Muhammad Ali's likeness. Was a brand of shoe po shoe polish called Champion Shoe Polish. Now Champ Champion Shoe Polish, which is tough to say was very controversial uh, almost from day one because it was a beautiful uh, shoe polish box with Ali's image on the front of it, uh, but and it even contained float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Mm. But the problem was the champion shoe polish resembled Kiwi shoe polish, which was the preeminent shoe polish on the market at that time uh, in 1987. When people still polish their shoes, I guess we should <laughs> add that in as a kind of a, yeah. a, as a caveat sure. to explain it to younger listeners. So there are many products in Ali's um, 
many products that Ali's associated with, especially in the 80s, that are absolutely ludicrous, ill-fated business ventures, madcap kind of get-rich-quick schemes that people bring to him and he puts his name on and nothing comes of them. What are just, what are a few of those? There's bed sheets. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Like, do you have a, there's, yeah. There's a sports car. There's condensed milk. Condensed milk <laughs> condensed for the milk. Middle Eastern markets. <laughs> Wait, really? Mm-hmm. There's an incredible array of, of products um, associated with Ali that, that he basically does a chalk. There's a cookie. There's a Muhammad Ali cookie that he, he puts his name. And he, he even turns up at, you know, cookie conventions. <laughs> promoting this stuff. The 80s is a very, very interesting time in Muhammad Ali's life. And ul- they, he, he ends up in some weird, he ends up in some weird places. And ultimately it's, it's, it's sad because he, well, I don't know. You tell me, is it sad ultimately because in the 80s he's hasn't been good with his money. He's losing his, he's, ha- he's starting to experience dementia to say the least. Um, is it, sad that he's having to do all of these random, you know, things. And he's a lot of times not getting the better end of the business deal. Absolutely. It's very, it's very poignant because when you look at, you know, the arc of his career, there's a real downward slide throughout the eighties. He's surrounded by a lot of questionable characters, businessmen, lawyers, who are trying to make a buck off him. They lend his name to various dodgy enterprises. Sometimes I don't even think he's aware of how his name is being used. Mm. Um, and then the arc kind of goes back from post-1996 mm. after the lighting of the flame in Atlanta, there is the arc goes, goes up again and, and Ali, the brand recovers and he becomes, he stands for something different and he's treated better. He's paid properly. He's handled, he's managed properly. I suppose if you want to put it like that, he's managed properly by those around him and he's not exploited as much and he's not as vulnerable to these really, you know, there are some charlatans in Ali world in the 1980s and even into the early 1990s. These, uh, whether it's the Warren Hatch story or John Houston or uh, the champion shoe polish with Evil Knievel, they're all kind of just like days in his life. It seems like every day there's something, even if it's only for 10 minutes, that most of us couldn't even imagine in our wildest dreams. This, the reason why Ali is the greatest sports story ever told is exactly what you just touched upon there. Everywhere he went, something happened. Ali goes to Australia in the mid 1970s. He's just doing some stuff, promoting some, promoting something, promoting a fight. I think Ali's walking down the street. He hears a commotion in a pub in the middle of Sydney, one of the toughest pubs in Sydney. He walks in, there's a rugby league team in there having a drinking session. Ali walks into the middle of it, taps the biggest guy on the shoulder and said, did you just call me a bleep? n-word uh the big rugby player turns around ready to punch him in the face and then recognize oh it's muhammad ali and then the rugby players swarm around him you know it's big the greatest day of their life to get to hang with muhammad ali in a pub while drinking with their friends you know that kind of stuff just you and you swap that story out that happens in dublin in right. dublin he in dublin he takes a drive around the city at 5 30 in the morning and he gets out of his limo and hangs out with a street sweeper 
in the middle of Dublin. And this guy's, you know, who's going to believe a street sweeper in the middle of Dublin that at six o'clock in the morning, Muhammad Ali appeared and got out and chatted to him while he swept the street. And, and you know, nobody would believe that. Right. But, but that's the kind of stuff. Ali touched people, you know, everywhere he went. He, he ends up in Birmingham, England in, in the early 1980s in one of the roughest roughest areas, roughest neighborhoods in, in Birmingham, England, Handsworth, really tough place. And Ali walks around there, goes into a store and gets the tailor to make him a suit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every, if you, if you intersect with Ali, if you cross paths with Ali, you leave with a story for your life. You know, you leave, you leave some, your life, it, you will always have the story of the day you, the day you met Ali, how he touched your life, the, the extraordinarily odd, crazy, funny, sad, brilliant thing that happened. And that's kind of what happened in his orbit. And that's what made, and he was doing that for 40 years. Like, right. He's doing that from 1960, you know, to when, you know, even right at the end, you see the pictures of Ali watching his grandson playing high school football in Arizona. He turns up, I think he's in a wheelchair, and, he, and there's suddenly there's a picture of Ali on the sideline watching his, his grandson play football, but with Snoop Dogg standing next to him <laughs> because Snoop Dogg's son is playing as well. Yeah. And you're like, only Ali, would that be, you know, he's crossing generations. Right. And he, Ali goes to a high school football game and hangs out with Snoop Dogg kind of thing. It kind of, I mean, it's sort of my whole, uh, the, the story that I, I spent all the time on in terms of Ali getting to where the man Joseph was up on the office building, you know, getting there so quickly. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying would almost be one's reason to think that it was to really believe that it was all real because there's a pattern that Ali has of changing people's lives in the most extraordinary and strange scenarios that one could, could imagine. Yeah. It's like extraordinary things happen to him because, and you know, this is so different to the elite athletes in whatever sport you want to talk about today. They live closeted, you know, they're closeted, they're cordoned off from the world. Ali was open to everything and Ali was wide open. He walked, and that was probably his downfall in terms of business, but Ali went places to meet people. You know, when he was in Ireland, he was annoyed because the hotel they put him in was on the outskirts of the city and it was far from the action. So he would be driven into the city center and he would literally walk down the street because he liked the way kids would swarm around him and they would chant his name and that's what he got off on. He loved that. And then he would walk into stores. He would meet people. He went into the parliament building in, in Dublin <laughs> to meet the prime minister, the Taoiseach, as we call him. And he ends up on the phone to a guy's wife saying, your husband's not coming home tonight. He's hanging with the champ. <laughs> And those are the kind of stuff that he was open to allowing these things to happen to him in a way that, you know, no other athlete then, and certainly no athlete now right. at that level or of that caliber, you know, would be open to mixing with the, with the regular folk and just putting themselves in positions and oper opportunity, you know, positions of opportunity or positions where, where, you know, madcap things can happen. After I spoke with Hannigan, I found the video of Senator Orrin Hatch talking about Ali's incredible way with kids at Muhammad Ali's funeral, where President Clinton and Billy Crystal also spoke. This is from Hatch's speech. 
On another occasion, I took Ali to Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City. We visited with downtrodden children who perhaps had never smiled a day in their lifetime until Ollie showed up. Ollie held those kids and looked into their eyes. They would grin from ear to ear. These are kids that never smiled. They were so pained. The nurses were astounded. Never before had they seen someone who had connected so immediately and profoundly with these sick children. Ollie had a special way with kids, as we all know. He may have been a tough and tenacious man in the ring, but he was compassionate and tender around those that he loved. You can find Hannigan's Orrin Hatch piece online at the Irish Times, where he does a weekly column looking at American sports from a weird angle, or really just the angle of an Irish guy living in Long Island. You gotta love it. The next author I speak with is Jonathan Eig, who has written nearly 5 billion New York Times bestsellers. Well, not, uh, yeah, that's a bit much, but a few. Some of which include Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, Opening Day, The Story of Jackie Robinson's First Season, Get Capone, The Secret Plot That Captured America's Most Wanted Gangster, The Birth of the Pill, How Four Crusaders Reinvented Sex and Launched a Revolution, and most relevant to us, Ali, A Life. A book that took him, well, you'll see, a long, long time to write. A book widely considered one of the best books of 2017. Congratulations, man. I mean, I, I, I read it myself pretty quickly for a book that is, it's so big that I think I was, I had noted or had seen that just your appendix is, is like 80 pages. Yeah, there's a lot of extra material in there, but, um, you know, some of that's intentional. You know, you want to show people how much work went into this thing so that they they take it seriously. I think that was part of why oh. I wanted to include all that stuff. You know, I got I really respect you for saying that. I feel like most would never admit that, because I think that's an important part of what makes this really the Ali book for a variety of reasons, but one being that you did five, you know, from what I'm understanding, over 500 interviews and looking through old FBI records and files. And so, yeah, you should put in 80 pages of, you know, all of this research so people know what it takes to be a proper biographer, if I dare say so myself. Yeah, and it, some of it's showing off a little bit. You know, when, when somebody is reading the should. book, that there's a quote. You know, somebody's reading a, a quote from Louis Farrakhan in there. I want them to flip to the back and see where I got that and say, oh, yeah, he actually interviewed Louis Farrakhan at, at you know, in his Farrakhan was wearing his bathrobe and, you know, sitting in, in his lazy boy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't just get that out of a magazine or something. Yeah, no, I mean, seriously, I, I, I want to make a point of this on the show. I mean, good for you. I feel, I don't think it's showing off at all. I think it's, it's probably the right thing for an author to do and not always get stuck in, uh, in being too humble. Uh, maybe you learned that from Ali himself while, while working right. yeah, on the project. It rubbed off on me. My yeah. wife says I could, uh, I could use a little bit more humility. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask you one question, which is what I emailed you about in terms of uh, a funny story or, or two that come to mind when, when really talking about Ali. Uh, I, if you don't mind, Jonathan, I wanted to first just see, I saw in an ESPN article uh, interview you did about defining, you know, what is a biography? 
and I loved your answer about, uh, and maybe you could just speak to this quickly about how this is not an authorized biography and what that would mean versus what you did. Yeah, an authorized biography means that you're doing it in cooperation with the subject and that he has he has authorized you to do this. He's given you permission. And, uh, you know, when I began this, Ali was still alive and uh, his his business manager actually approached me and, and asked if I wanted to make this an authorized biography. And I said no, because I didn't want to have my hands tied. I didn't want them to be able to come to me and say, we're not comfortable having that in the book. It makes Ali look bad. Or um, we want you to uh, be sure to mention this particular act of charity. You know, it should be it should be my call. And and, and the argument that I made to him is that um, it was actually better for Ali and his image to have a serious biography that was done objectively so that readers would know that this was, uh, you know, not some uh, some glamorized marketing uh, material that was just meant to sell more, you know, Ali brand sweatshirts or watches. So I was pretty, uh, it was, it wasn't really, uh, I, not something I even considered for a minute doing it as an authorized book. And to your point, one could make the argument that so many of the Ali material that's been out there through the years has added and grown to his legend being sort of perfect or, or closer to perfection than it was in reality. Is that fair? Yeah, it's certainly fair. And it's not just Ali. We do this to a lot of our, our great historical figures. Um, you know, look at, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or, you know, Abraham Lincoln or FDR, you know, we turn them into these saintly figures and we forget that they were flawed, that they, you know, that they had problems and their lives were not always perfect. And, and, uh, and I, I think that's a big mistake because I want to read a book where I can relate to the person. I want to read a book where I can understand how a normal person accomplished great things. I don't want to, you know, if, if, if I want fantasy, I'll, I'll go see, you know, Captain America movies. Fuck. Yeah, man. Love it. <laughs> um, this has been the best five minutes of interview we've ever had. Um, <laughs> So Ali, I mean, if there was one man on the face of, on the planet to speak with, who had a funny Ali story, it would be you, sir. Is there, (laughs) is there one that comes to mind that, um, that you've, you've enjoyed through the years? Oh man, there were so many. He was a clown, you know, he was, he just loved pulling stunts. Um, when he was little, he used to um, like run a, a fishing line into his parents' bedroom and, and attach it to the blinds. And then, you know, like rattle, rattle the blinds while his parents were sleeping from, That's from really across funny. the house. Um, and, and even when he was old, I just heard this story the other day, somebody, you know, I was on the book tour and this woman, and people come up to me all the time and say, I met Ali and, you know, I saw him in the airport. And there's oh, right. So you keep getting this. new and, stuff almost. Huh? Yeah. This woman says she was sitting in first class and she was, I think she worked for the, for the Department of Health at the time. She's a, you know, a federal employee, but she was um, traveling to a conference. Um, she was sitting in first class and, and Ali was sitting across from her and, and she didn't want to say anything because she didn't want to bother him. And he was old and he was shaky and he was just sitting there while they were waiting for the plane to take off. And he was ripping up the in-flight magazine, you know, just ripping it up into tiny little pieces <laughs> and um, putting it in a cup. 
and and she thought, my God, there's something wrong with this guy. Like he's 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 like a, you know he's he must be brain damaged or something. He's just sitting there putting tiny little pieces of paper in a cup. What is what's going on? What's wrong with him? And uh, he did that for like an hour, and then he got up and took the cup with him and started walking down the aisle of the airplane, just sprinkling the little pieces of paper in people's hair. <laughs> and, and nobody noticed it at first. You know, he was just like putting, and then people in the back of the plane saw what he was doing and, and they all started cracking up. And, um, and, and soon the whole plane was cracking up and then of course it was Ali. So everybody yeah. was just gawking at him anyway. Right. And, um, and he just thought, so, so, so he spent the whole flight just like, or the whole first hour sitting on the plane, just plotting this, uh, that he was going to go and, and sprinkle confetti in people's hair on the plane. And, um, another guy told me they were at a, they were at a hotel in Japan and, and, um, it was, a, I guess, a traditional kind of place where you weren't supposed to wear shoes into the, into your room. So mm-hmm. as they went back to their room late at night, they looked up and down the hallway and there's just, just you know, there are pairs of shoes in front of every hotel room, in front of every door on the floor in their hotel so Ali uh, looked at his friend and said, follow me. And he, he started picking up all the shoes and rearranging them, putting them <laughs> all in front of the wrong door. <laughs> so that when people would go up in the morning, nobody would be able to find their shoes. That's funny. Um, he was just always doing stuff like that. And what's your favorite one from your book? Oh, man. My favorite one from the book. Let me think a second. You know, I'm not sure this qualifies as a prank, but I, I think it's, you know, maybe my favorite story about Ali that was the most revealing was that, you know, everybody, I used to hear people say that he used to race the bus to school when he was a kid. He was, you know, 15, 16 years old and he was training to be a boxer and he would race the bus to school. So, um, you know, I wanted to really be able to describe that scene. I wanted to know, you know, what it looked like and how the kids reacted. Did they, did they ignore him after a while because, you know, they were just used to it? Um, did he wear his, his school clothes? Did he wear like gym clothes? Did he get to school and he, you know, smell really bad um, because he was all sweaty? Right. Um, so I started asking some of his friends about it. And, uh, you know, I said, was it a school bus? And they said, no, it was a city bus. Hmm. And I said, well, something about that bothered me. And it took me a, like a week or two before I thought of why it was bothering me. And I called this guy back and I said, you said it was a city bus, right? And he said, yeah, um, city bus. We paid 10 cents to ride. And I said, doesn't a city bus stop all the time? Um, and he goes, yeah, it stopped like every block. So, so I said, if Ali was trying to race the bus, um, what, what kind of race is that? If the bus is stopping every block, he, he should have won easy. And he said, no, Ali would stop every block whenever the bus stopped and he'd wait till the bus started up again. And then when we got off at Chestnut street, he would, he would sit, he would stop and wait for us for the next, wait with us for the next bus. That's amazing. And, um, I said, so he wasn't really trying to race the bus at all, was he? He said, no, he was just trying to entertain us. You know, he, sometimes he would, he would jump up on the window and grab onto it and swing along and, and, and ride on the side of the bus, just swinging on the outside, holding on like Spider-Man for a few blocks and, and, until the bus driver would catch him and, and stop and <laughs> yell at him. And what I learned from that was that, you know, Ali wanted to be a great boxer and wanted to be in great shape. But maybe even more importantly, he just wanted attention. Mm. And I think that just tells you so much about him that all his life, he, you know, he wanted to be the champion. He wanted to be the greatest of all time. But I think more than anything, he wanted to be loved and wanted to make people laugh. That's so interesting. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming back on, Jonathan. I really uh, very much appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks to Jonathan for taking the time out of his uh, really busy schedule. 
I do wish we could close the chapter on this story, but that's also part of the process. Perhaps there's more to come in the near future. Who knows? Maybe this is only the beginning. So is this an unsatisfying conclusion? To some degree, I'm sure it kind of is. And this is what I meant earlier by Shades of Grey. We don't have the answer. I've narrowed it down quite a bit, and although I could claim I know what happened, I want to tell you what really happened. And we're not there yet. And so, the legend of Ali continues. The mystery remains. Just as the greatest ever would probably like it. That is all for this week's reaction episode. A big thanks to the team here at Cadence 13, Chris Corcoran, Bill Schultz, John McDermott, Chris Flannery, Chris Colbert, Pam Kramer, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Seven Bucks Productions, and Jones Works. And with season two coming just around the corner, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, What Really Happened. Next week, Chris Christie and Bridgegate. The characters in this Shakespearean story were hard to believe. The Lone Wolf, Phony Baroni, The Fixer, Smoke, and so many more. We speak with journalist Matt Katz, who literally wrote the book on Christie, and get his reaction to the episode. And as Christie is now out of office, what happens next? <laughs>